Welcome, everybody. This is our first emergency podcast. <laughs> uh, I've arranged an emergency podcast. We're joined by Mike Morris from Memorial. Mike, welcome. Um, Thank you. Mike, it's an emergency podcast, Mike, because I was in the bar last night after the prostate session, uh, which I went to. and um, the, Which was in the morning, so that's which, doubling, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, and essentially what happened is I met a group of different people who had no skin in the game. Right. Um, who felt completely differently about the same issue. And yes. the issue is PARP inhibition in prostate cancer, in CRPC. There's an HRR deficient population. There's a strong biological rationale that the population it should work in, particularly the BRCA population. And the data shows, all the data shows enrichment in that population. The magnitude trial shows in the HRR non-deficient population didn't even hit PFS and the trial closed. And yet, and of course, there's no OS at the moment, although there is an OS trend in the Alaparib study um, with Abby uh, in, um, um, in, in, for overall survival. But we're talking mainly about PFS. Or, or, and the, the, the story seems to be that there are a group of people, as I said before, no skin in the game as far as I can see, who actually say this is an ITT trial. The drugs work across broad groups of people. There's synergy between Abby or Enza and PARP inhibition, which is driving this benefit. The biomarker isn't accurate enough, um, and, uh, and therefore we should be treating all comers. And there's a second group of people who say, we know the biomarker works across all the trials. There's enrichment, and we need to be using this biomarker. And um, I was basically uh, listening to these two debates last night, and I thought I'd get someone who knew what they were talking about. I asked a number of people, uh, but we ended up with you. <laughs> yes, well, I, that, like, and and as appropriate, you know, like uh, you you get what you get. But get what you, you know, pay I for. think that um, it was an extraordinary session yesterday because uh, we we saw back to back data of uh, Propel, Triton three, and uh, Magnitude. You know, it was like all of the studies put together, presented, and it's such an interesting thing that you can walk away from such an in a data intensive session with everybody scratching their heads in a disagreement. Mike, it, can I just interrupt? There was Telapro 2 as well. The uh, yes, indeed. Data, so just to make sure that, every, that all four uh, were represented to make Absolutely. sure no one gets upset. Although the latter was somewhat of a different question uh, than these combination upfront uh, studies for which population uh, would most benefit. But you're absolutely right. It was, it was um, almost reflective of what the design of these trials engendered, which was real confusion, except for magnitude, which was designed to specifically answer which population would most benefit because it's separated out into two separate cohorts, the uh, HRD versus the uh, non-HRD population. The other trials, you knew, you knew going in that they were looking at a strategy of, of, of testing uh, you know, an ARSA plus or minus uh, a PARP inhibitor in a general population, which would engender this question to be battled out in bars all across town. <laughs> hey, Mike, to, before, you before know, we get are we really saying that all patients should be getting combination therapy or, uh, hey, uh, you know, can we have a more strategic view on this so as not to overtreat and, and overburden from a resource perspective the whole medical uh, infrastructure, like treating we, every prostate cancer patient with uh, first-line metastatic CRPC uh, with combination therapy. So, can we start with mechanism? Because 
whenever anybody has presented these data, they present a slide that says there's synergy here. Right. And they present different reasons. And I, what do you think? Is there true synergy? Is this just an A plus B because they're two active drugs? I mean, what? Yeah. What do you think? You that's know, state of none of the is? trials were really desi designed to reflect additive versus synergistic effects and in what population. But the but the preclinical data would suggest that AR is a participant to, uh, along with PARP in terms of DNA repair. And so inhibition of both molecules would augment the effect of the other in terms of efficiency of DNA repair. And of course, it's, it's really hard to tell whether that is, uh, is, is actually at the root of the result of these trials or is, you know, even part of what the results that we're seeing are, do we understand with full confidence that the biology is fully understood and, and that's the explanation. But there is, you know, laboratory basis for this for, for doing these trials and that laboratory basis has, has turned into actual results for some patient populations. I mm -hmm. think that no one would disagree at this point that for first-line metastatic CRPC for a BRCA2 patient, that they should get combination therapy. There's no trial that would suggest not, even if you had the RPFS and OS debate, which we saw yesterday, there is you know OS data that would suggest that the BRCA2 population does uh, benefit. It's the okay. rest of the group that- Okay, Mike, really... we're, gonna, we're gonna come to that. So we're gonna talk about BRCA2 right at the end if we can. All right. What I'd like to start is the HRR deficient debate because okay. the difference between BRCA2 and HRR deficient is there are others um, like ATM, other alterations like ATM. We saw some data yesterday suggesting that ATM wasn't particularly helpful. Right. Again, we've seen that in- with with a laparib as well, yep. and and, profound. Um, yep. and so the question is: Are we bringing along a series of additional DNA alterations which really aren't proven to be relevant here? And are we doing that just to expand the population? Because otherwise, it's only five or ten percent of patients, and clearly, it's hard to do trials with only five percent of patients involved. I think that you've seen now reproducibly from study to study that those other alterations don't yield the results of the BRCA2 patient population, are discrete from each other in addition to being discrete from BRCA2 and should be treated as a different class of patient because their, their response curves are less uh, lesser than uh, their treatment effects are lesser than the BRCA population, and I guess the question is: Do does that hodgepodge uh, of other mutations, um, uh, although it looks better than the non-mutated population, should these be distinguished from each other? They certainly should be distinguished from the BRCA, but do they warrant treatment? And I think that the ATM data that was presented yesterday, uh, by, uh, you know, in the in the course of that marathon session it was in the telaparib study it was yes it, it would certainly suggest that atm looks like it is a really non-benefiting patient population with a parp inhibitor in uh, multiple studies but but mike does some of that answer depend on whether you're a treat everyone or treat selective person right if you're a yeah. treat everyone you're just treating everyone <laughs> Yeah, ATM and included, I suppose. I'll, I'll put my cards on the table that um, I 
don't think it does anyone a, a, a favor by saying that we should walk away from this study, ignore the biomarkers that we have available to interpret who most benefits, and just treat everyone uh, with an ARSI PARP inhibitor combination and, um, and, and feel at the end of the day that, that it, this is simple and you should just do it that way. Okay, I, so I, I'm about half speak. past 11 last night, I got into a debate with someone around this issue and they've come back to this, which was reasonable. I don't, by the way, I'm not quite sure which side I, sit, I was sitting on by this point. I changed my time from <laughs> my mind three times during the evening, depending right. on who I was talking to, which isn't the first time that's happened. The comeback to that is you've just said to me, you don't really believe the biomarker. You called it a hodgepodge. Um, we did a trial that was positive. The PFS, which was mm -hmm. accepted as an endpoint. Right. You, you, by your own admission, you don't like the biomarker. And now you said we have to use something you don't like, even though we didn't even test that. Well, I think that um, we can recognize a sweet spot of a population that we should treat and understand that we have more to learn about everybody else. Uh, without feeling ashamed that we're practicing personalized medicine. If we did exactly what you said, um, we should just check our brains at the door with every trial that we <laughs> perform because we would just say, huh, phase three, it's, you know, this was the intended patient population. I forget who showed the, the slide of the M&Ms yesterday, but what, what it was saying, I think it was Johan, he he. he said each patient is a set of M&Ms with multiple different iterations of prostate cancer. We need to better understand who's who. And I completely agree with that philosophy. Anyone who treats prostate cancer or studies it knows it's a heterogeneous disease with intrapatient and interpatient differences. Uh, if all we do is look at trials as designed, and believe me, uh, pr th these trials are designed so that specifically so that you could get to an answer in which people would say, well, let's just treat everybody. But that design has to be pushed back upon and, and resisted. But if it's going to be the design that a sponsor puts forth, we owe it to the whole medical community to sort through the results afterwards and not just say, well, are we designing the trials wrongly? Should it be magnitude? To remember, the, as you be. said, magnitude would test in the biomarker, yeah. the, the deficient population, and the non-deficient population. And so you think that we, that actually this, that, that, that essentially a group of patients are bringing, which happen to fall with largely within the umbrella of the HRR deficient population are dragging the ITT population in the positive direction. And to take that argument to an extreme, you know, you could even include a whole lot of bladder cancer patients. And under those circumstances, you get a label in bladder cancer as well. Absolutely. If, you had a, if you had enough of the HRR population to drag the bladder population over the line. So you, yeah. could, we, so you think there's a problem with the inclusion criteria? I, I, I respect that the curves are looking like the general population still is enjoying some benefit independent of the BRCA population. So I've got two but questions. We, do, we only have that data for RPFS. I've got a really Can important... I, um, yes, of course, of course. So we've heard the argument that, well, magnitude was different because it was a different hormone agent and it was a different PARP inhibitor. And, and just like in TKIs and kidney cancer, they're really not the same. Right. So, yeah, while magnitude, you know, showed what it showed, you can't really use that to say that we should treat everyone. Do you, do you buy that? I do. 
that it was a different, it was just a different study. We have to sort of set it aside, if you will, or in yep. parallel. But, it, but, uh, but it is actually how the studies should have been designed to yeah. answer the question of who should be treated. But you accept that not all the PARP inhibitors have the same activity. Absolutely. Some are more active than others. Yeah, I know that there have been, you know, at previous meetings, commentators saying that, uh, that you know, sort of uh, all PARPs uh, might be the same. I really don't think so. If you look at um, their ability to uh, sequester PARP and their, their, their PD and PK properties, we should not consider them all to be the same drug, even though they're within the same drug class, any more so than we would any other drug. We don't say that cabazitaxel and docetaxel are the same drug, mm -hmm. behave the same way, even just because they, they have the same mechanism of action. We shouldn't do that uh, with the PARP inhibitors either. Okay, so question from me. In the um, non-deficient population, we still have a hazard ratio less than one for our PFS. Mm -hmm. And is that because the drugs, is that because the biomarker is just inaccurate and that actually some of the HRR deficient population is in that population because they've done of tumor heterogeneity and tumor evolution with time? Right. Or, or is it because there is just something we're totally missing? I, I think that it is... A, it's undeniable that from an RPFS standpoint, there is a benefit that seems to be playing itself out in more than the BRCA2 population. And that at this point, you don't have supportive data from OS to say, well, uh, there's a definitive long-term benefit other than interim disease control. I'm not willing to say at this point that there is, there will never be a role for the non-biomarker positive uh, population to get combination therapy. I do think that I wouldn't be as dogmatic to say RPFS has simply no relevance unless there are further studies uh, correlating it with the OS. But I would say that you just need more data, you need more time. And I don't think that the question is definitively answered uh, you really do like to see more than one endpoint hit in order to convince yourself that that endpoint has clinical relevance. I don't accept that RPFS alone means clinical benefit, as one of the speakers in answering a question did, saying, well, it's intrinsically evident that, an, uh, that RP delaying RPFS means delaying disease progression, which means that patients feel better. They are just generally better because they haven't progressed. You'd like something a little bit more clinically relevant. I would believe that if we, if we had a quality of life study that showed patients on one uh, you know, arm versus the other had superior quality of life, but in point of fact, there were a lot of uh, dose reductions to accommodate a AEs and d drug discontinuations to do the same. So I think that it's certainly not self-evident that delaying RPFS means that these patients lived better. So my, you're, the RPFS versus OS debate, you're basically saying RPFS may be a benefit and it may be a benefit in a subset, but that in and of itself without corroborating other endpoints isn't enough. Is that a fair summary? It, it, that is a fair summary, yeah. yeah. Mike, yeah. where do we go next? Well, um, I think that 
we are we're sort we, there is another trial that's going on with oh my goodness Caparis, you're joking right? <laughs> so that's the casper trial i don't know where that that will you know wh- what the status will will be in and terms what is of, that mike what's the design it's very similar to propel and to uh, triton 3 in that it is ends up plus or minus uh, rucaparib for all comers with a retrospective look at the bio at the biomarker yeah. Um, as as was raised in the meeting, there are the you know the the, the sponsor. It's not clear what the future uh, is of Recaparib, so it, it's hard to know whether that trial is going to be completed or not. I don't know, um, but there's there's another study, and I suspect that it will probably you know who knows what it will show. But we have two trials that are showing very very similar results to each other, and I you know I think. When that third trial results, we may be in a very similar position. I think we should not be doing this design anymore, right? Because it's leading to too much uh, confusion in terms of interpretation. We're a field now that is um, really defined in in its most recent drug approvals by biomarker-driven studies. We have a radiopharmaceutical driven by identification of uh, of a molecule that lends itself to predicting who will benefit or not. We have uh, PEMBRO uh, that is approved on the basis of identifying a molecule that will predict who will benefit. We have PARP inhibitors that already have been approved on the basis of a biomarker. We should not be doing trials that just take all comers and we'll sort it out at the end. We have more sophistication now as a field that I think that we should be answering these questions upfront in terms of biomarker identification and their predictive value for response in clinical So if, if, if you were king of the world, had unlimited resources, uh, which I think you do at Memorial. Which, of perhaps, course, yeah. You pretty much, yeah, I think that's actually, <laughs> if, matter, it's a matter of fact. Uh, you know, the conditionality of that statement is, you know, I'm not <laughs> accept it. What, what would you do? You know, we have the results we have. Let's, you know, we obviously I don't would have love some of the to, OS signals. I, I would really love to repeat the magnitude design Mm-hmm. In three arms, BRCA, BRCA two because it's not just BRCA, BRCA yeah. two, BRCA one, ATM, etc., mm-hmm. and non-HRD patients, and answer the question. If ideally, um, in much the same manner, I would actually, if I were king of the universe, would um, move the context into a much more contemporary and frequent, at least for North America. Uh, of actually being second line therapy because most of our patients are getting ARSIs mm-hmm. or metastatic CSPC. And um, I'd want to see a trial that addresses really that that patient population in metastatic CRPC rather than the ARPI. Mike, is this, is this discussion a lot of it academic because you're not giving second line ARSI plus part because they're getting frontline ARSI well, or doublet or triplet therapy. Interesting is all of question. This, what, so, what, what is, this, is this just a debate or how is this affecting so, patients? So you, you say that as though it were a foregone conclusion that patients won't be getting a second line ARSI. But if you look at real world data, most of those patients are not going on to chemotherapy. They might be going on to, an, to a PARP inhibitor alone. Uh, but we don't have the question answered for second line ARSIs. And, and in mm-hmm. point of fact, most patients are not going from metastatic CSPC right into chemotherapy as a, as a matter of uh, actual practice. 
So when and if you measure the biomarker and which patients are you treating with PARP inhibition and which PARP inhibitor would you use if you were allowed to? Well, if I had the existing data, that is, yes. if I had a patient who had not received uh, who had not received an ARSI for uh, metastatic CSPC, what would I choose going into my new uh, my new my new my next regimen? Yes. Um, if that patient were BRCA two positive, I probably would use um, Abian Olaparib because uh, Nurapirib right now isn't approved for prostate cancer, and Rucaparib uh, has its approval in the post chemotherapy setting. But in the in in matters of practicality, what's approved for that setting right now, it, it, you know, in terms of an actual. What about if your biomarker panel only said HRR deficient or non deficient? You would you would still treat. So you couldn't get it. You I couldn't would, define the brackenness. It, you, it you, would depend on the patient. So if I had a patient, so um, you wouldn't even you you're even so you you need to come to this bar tonight because you're going to get. I mean, <laughs> no, really I, I, look, I believe the data that um, that patients should be getting their PARP inhibitor before chemotherapy if you're going to use a PARP inhibitor because I do think that the data are superior in the pre chemotherapy setting versus the post chemotherapy setting. But I'm not willing to say, and you know, that prostate cancer just has one single treatment paradigm because we mm -hmm. all know that, and, and I, I hate to sort of keep hammering on this, it's a heterogeneous disease. And, and folks who say, like, there is just one acceptable treatment pathway that patients should be on, underappreciate the subtleties of treating this disease because patients have very different biology and different paces of the disease, different risks of death. Their disease manifestations are different one from the other. Their underlying genomics in terms of other than the, the whole PARP issue in terms of mm -hmm. C53 and RB play a role as well. Their manifestations of their, their disease in terms of visceral disease or not. You know, th this is a very complex disease. For most patients who are average patients, um, who are just moving from their ARSI into castra for castration-sensitive disease into castration resistance, would I generally move to a PARP if they were BRCA2? And quite possibly, if they were otherwise biomarker positive, would I pull out the um, PARP tool rather than the chemotherapy tool? I would, yes. So would that, I say yeah, that's, that's true for all patients? Obviously not. That's what I was just going to ask. For the patient who gets ARSI up front, which is the majority, at least in the U.S., yeah. you'd lean towards PARP, certainly in brackets, who may be indeficient, but I would. not in the others. And I, it, not in your point of heterogeneity. Yeah. yeah. That single agent or leopard. Um, well, how about this uh, as a question? <laughs> so would, would you continue uh, the previous ARSI and add the PARP? Would you stop the previous AR ARSI and start PARP as monotherapy, or would you switch to a new ARSI and add the PARP? So, and I don't have so, the answer to that. So that's what actually I'm gonna, the real world question. Yeah, that it we is don't the have. real world question, but it's not the question was asked in the studies. And so now it, again, we're, right. we're back off yeah. piste again. But remember, I you thought said we were doing well. I thought we were doing well. I thought we were doing well. But you said, if I were master of the universe, what yes, would I that, do? And that's the question that, that I would ask. Remove that title. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the question. Yeah, that's the question that I think that's is unanswered. Done, right? I mean, that's 
that's the real that's the real world question is what do you do in you know most of our patients are getting arsi upfront for their newly diagnosed castration sensitive disease what do we do with these data now um, in a in a world in which they're moving on to the, in their first line of crpc uh, therapy um, to the next line of therapy what should we be doing and these studies don't answer that do you think the us cooperative groups could take on that study do you think it'll ever be done or it'll just be one of those unanswered I don't know. I I, I think that that space is about to be very uh, conflicted if uh, PSMA4 um, looks like it's going to move into that first line metastatic CRPC space. So we're going to have a new standard of care quite possibly when we see the data uh, that's going to confound that question. Um, But, you know, the, the, the pace of change right now for that space is very high. Uh, and it, it's hard to imagine that by the time a trial that's taking yeah. on that question is answered, that will it will still be relevant. Just like those older trials that are now resulted in terms of Propel and Triton 3, they, they, they've resulted in a world where that question is now somewhat behind us. Yeah. Magic, Mike. This is really good, Mike. Appreciate it. Alrighty. It's always a pleasure. I'm going to be much better informed tonight. I'm going to, yeah, it's, <laughs> I'm going to be much the better. The thing is, is maybe it will get clearer with twice the amount of drinking. <laughs> that know? is the problem. The dosing is relevant. <laughs> yes. <But> the dose, <laughs> the dose, dose clarity response. Yeah. yeah. I'll see you soon, Mike. <laughs> All sure. right. Take, take care. care. Well, oh, thank you for meet. having me. It's always great to be on. It's a pleasure. Uh, your Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.